Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We are excited that you came across this message. The sermon you are about to listen to is from our study through the New Testament book of James. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Do us a favor and text new to hope to 94090. After you hit send, you'll get an immediate response from our team with a link to a short form for you to fill out so we can get to know you better. Once again, thank you for joining us today. Enjoy the sermon. If you were to sit down at your computer, grab your phone and go on to Google and ask this question, what is the most difficult language in the world to learn? You would find that there is some debate depending on which website you go to about which language is most difficult to learn. But there are a few languages that kind of bubble to the top if you scroll over several pages. I did that this week. I Google what's the most difficult language? And here's some of the ones that rise to the top. Mandarin, Chinese, Arabic, Japanese. Didn't expect this one. Icelandic. Didn't know about that one. Vietnamese. Those are just some of the languages that rise to the top. But here's the reality. English is really one of the most difficult languages in the world to learn. As a matter of fact, there's an article that's put out by Oxford Royal Academy, and listen to what they say about the English language. One of the reasons why English is known for being difficult is because it's full of contradictions. There's no ham in hamburger. Neither is an apple nor pine in pineapple. If teachers taught, why didn't preachers prompt? If a vegetarian eats vegetables, what does a humanitarian eat? As native speakers, we rarely stop to think how illogical many of the things we say really are. We're just used to them. And that's the reality for people that have to learn English as a second language. It's a very difficult language to learn because of all the inconsistencies. And one, of, one example of the inconsistencies is something called homonyms. Anybody know what a homonym is? Some of you did your English homework. Homonyms are words that are spelled the same, but they have different meanings. Let me give you an example of what I mean. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put a word up on the screen, and I want you to say what you think about when you see this word. All right, here we go. One, two, three. Here's the first word. So, so what do you think about? Some people, okay, yeah, multiple things that people say. Now, I want to put a sentence up here with this word. Look at the sentence. The bark on the tree was covered in what? Moss. Now, when you see the word bark, some of you, when you see the word bark, the first thing you think of is what a dog does. All right, let me hear your best dog bark. Let me hear it. Uh, I know you've always wanted to do that in church, right? There's your best dog bark. But as soon as you see the word in the sentence, now you don't think this has anything to do with a dog, right? In the sentence, we completely understand the word bark. Let me give you another example. Here's the word forward. Forward. What do you think about when you think about forward? Let me put a sentence. Mark Stone starts at forward for the Vegas Golden Knights. Amen? Let's go. Hey, we are 4-0, the only team in the NHL that is undefeated so far. What a great start. Now, for a lot of us, when you see the word forward, you think about moving in a direction in front of you, right? But the word forward can mean different things depending on the context. This sentence is about our first ever named Captain Mark Stone of the Vegas Golden Knights. He starts at forward. So the point is these words make sense 
only when you see them in their context. Without the context, we don't know what it means. I know what some of you are thinking. Pastor, (laughs) why are you giving us an English lesson? That is not what I came to church for. Well, the reason I'm doing that is because we read the New Testament. We're about to dig into the book of James. If you have your Bible, you can open there. In the Bible, we read the New Testament in English, but the Bible is originally written, the New Testament anyway, was written in the Greek language. And the Greek language has some of the same challenges that the English language has. For example, there's one word in the Greek language that can mean multiple things depending on its context. In the Greek, it's pronounced parasmos. But in English, it can either mean a temptation or it can mean a trial. And depending on the context, we understand just like with bark and forward, the context helps us understand what it means. Let me give you an example. Here's a verse that you've probably heard many times before out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen to what it says. No what? Say the second word out loud. Where'd it go? 1 Corinthians 10. Here it is. Here we go. No what? Temptation. Now there's the word parasmos. No parasmos, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is this common demand. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, there it is again, will provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Now, when you see that word used in this sentence, it's obvious that the writer is talking about temptation. What is temptation? Let me give you a definition for what we're going to unpack this weekend. Temptations are opportunities to choose something other than God. That's what temptation is. And here's the reality. All temptation is rooted in the lie that something other than God and his will can meet my needs or bring me satisfaction. Temptation is an opportunity to choose something other than God, and all temptation is rooted in a lie that something other than God and his will for my life can meet my needs and satisfy the desires of my heart. That's temptation. The other way this word is used means trial. Let me show it to you in the book of James. We started three weeks ago with studying James. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various what? Same exact Greek word, parasmos. Now, in this sentence, obviously, he's not talking about temptation. He's not talking about choosing to do something outside of God's will. Let me give you a definition of trials. This word trials, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, are the inevitable circumstances that make life hard. Those things that happen in our lives that are unavoidable, they're unpredictable, they're uncomfortable, the circumstances and situations in life that we go through that we didn't have any control over, it wasn't because of a choice we made, they're just unavoidable circumstances. So when you read the New Testament, you see the word trials, you see the word temptation, it's It's literally the same Greek word, and the context is what helps us understand what's being meant. So depending on the context, the word can be a temptation designed to lure us away from God, or it can be a trial designed to deepen our fellowship with God and produce his life in us. You say, okay, where are we going with this? Here's where we're going. In the section of scripture we come to in the book of James, James uses the word in both ways. 
James is writing to us to help us understand the difference between trials and temptations. So with that context, let's read it. James chapter 1. Open your Bible to to James chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, you can look up on the screen and follow along. Here's what he says. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. There's the word, trial, parasmos. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. In verse 12, he's clearly talking about those unavoidable circumstances that are outside of our control. They come into our lives randomly. We wake up in the middle of them and we're called by God to persevere. And as we persevere, it grows us in intimacy with Jesus and it deepens our faith relationship with God. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, same word, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived. James is wanting us to lean in and understand the difference between trials and temptation. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be be a kind of first fruits among creation." James here in this text uses both of those, uses the word in both ways that we've explored, and he's trying to teach us something. Why would James use this word in both ways in this context? Well, we're actually going to be unpacking that both this weekend and next weekend. We're going to stay in this same passage of scripture. But I read something by Warren Wiersbe that I thought was helpful in tying the two together. Listen to what he said. We may ask, why did James connect the two? What is the relationship between trials without and temptations within? Simply this, if we're not careful, the trials on the outside may become temptations on the inside. When our circumstances are difficult, we may find ourselves complaining against God, questioning his love, and resisting his will. At this point, Satan provides us with an opportunity to escape the difficulty. This opportunity is a temptation. So we're going to dig in this weekend in understanding three very distinct differences between trials and temptations. And let me tell you why this is important. The enemy doesn't want you and I to know these differences because it's these differences that can allow us to experience victory in Christ both in the midst of trials and temptations. But if we don't understand the difference, the enemy uses that to manipulate us in the midst of either trials or temptations. So three differences I want to share with you this weekend about the the difference between a trial and temptation. Here's the first one. God can be the source of our trials, but he can never be the source of our temptation. 
God can be the source of trials in our life. God causes some of those things in our lives because of what he desires to do in us and through us. But God will never tempt us as his follower. That's what James said. Look back at verse 13. James said, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. Here's the truth. God never causes us to be tempted. God doesn't tempt us. He never does. David Platt, my good friend, summed it up this way in his commentary on these verses. He said, God is perfectly sinless. Everything in him resists sin. Evil is inherently foreign to him. He is aware of it, but he is untainted by it. In no way can God be blamed for temptation and sin. So if if God is not the source of our temptation, often he may be the source of trials in our life because he's using those to grow us in him and to create a desperation for him. If God's not the source of temptation, then what is the source of temptation? Where does temptation come from? Well, I want to put up here on the screen a statement I said a few minutes ago. Here's the statement. All temptation is rooted in the what? I want you to say that word again. Say it out loud. I want you to hear that. All temptation is rooted in the lie that something other than God and his will can meet my needs or satisfy my desires. We have desires that God's given us. We have wants and needs that God's placed in our hearts. But when you and I succumb to temptation, what we're really doing is we're believing a lie that something other than God is the way to meet that desire. Something other than God is a way to fulfill that need in our lives. And so the enemy uses temptation and the lies of temptation come from three sources. Let me give them to you. First of all, your heart will lie to you. Let me say that another way. You will lie to you. Your heart will lie to you. Often I hear people give this kind of advice to a friend. Well, just follow your heart. Let me tell you something. That's horrible advice. It may look good in a Hallmark card. It may sound sweet on a Valentine, but I want you to understand something. Following your heart is bad advice because following your heart can be deadly because your heart will lie to you. Your heart will tell you this is what you need, man. If you just get this, you'll be happy. If you just get this, you'll be satisfied. But it's the lie of temptation that something other than God will meet that need or satisfy that desire. Listen to the way Jeremiah writes about it in the Old Testament. He said the heart is more deceitful than all else. That's a pretty bold statement. There's a lot of deceitfulness in the world, but here's what the Bible says. My heart is the biggest liar in my life. And this word deceitful is a word that describes deliberate deception. I didn't just stumble into it. My heart, and when the Bible uses the word heart, it's talking about our flesh, our fallen sinful nature. Yes, as a Christian, Jesus now lives inside of me. But until Jesus comes again, I got to drag around this old flesh that is bent towards doing that, which is opposite of what God would have me to do. And every day in my life, every moment of my life, there is a real battle taking place between the spirit of God inside of me, pointing me to God and his will, and my flesh that longs for the things of the this world. 
One of the ways the enemy defeats us is we don't understand that our heart will lie to us and that our heart's desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so we think something's wrong with us as a Christian when we struggle with these things in our lives. But here's what you need to understand. Temptation is rooted in a lie, and the primary source, the first source of lies in our lives is our own heart. But there's a second source. Not only your heart, this world will lie to you. By world, I mean the spiritual system that's made up of values, beliefs, and morals that are opposed. We live in a world that is materialistic and secular and polarized. Listen to what John says about the world. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, what is it? The lie, the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, from the world. And get this, the world's passing away. You see how it's a lie? The world says, we're what you need. Get the world, sit on top of the world, rule the world. But here's the lie, the world's passing away. You can get it all, can it all, sit on the lid, poison the rest. And guess what? Everything you got one day is going to be gone. It's a lie. It's like sand slipping through our fingers. Not just our flesh, not our heart, and not just the world. The ultimate source is our enemy. Satan himself will lie. Listen to what John says about him in John's gospel. About Satan, he says, For he is a liar and the father of all lies. Ultimately, all the lies of our heart, all the lies of the world... They come from Satan himself because he is a liar. When he lies, he's just being who he is. Deception is his nature, and the primary weapon of the enemy is deception. Let me give you a life application statement. Every sin in my life is choosing to believe a lie rather than the truth of God. See, God would never tempt us. That's why the enemy doesn't want us to know this. The enemy doesn't want you to know that God's not the source of temptation because when, when you don't understand that, you don't realize that all temptation's a lie. And sin is when I choose to believe the lie rather than the truth of God. Let me try to make it real plain. Think about the sin of jealousy. That's something we can all relate to. Everybody has dealt with jealousy at some point in their life. Jealousy is simply being discontent or resentful of that which somebody else has or does. What's the truth concerning jealousy? Here's the truth. God said he will meet your needs. The promise of this book is God has not forgotten you. God has not stopped loving you. God has not overlooked your situation in life. God has promised he will meet every need you have. Here's the lie that's rooted in the sin of jealousy. My needs can only be met if I have what you have. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get bitter. I'm going to be discontent. And I'm going to be resentful and manipulative and try to get what you have because I think the only way I can be satisfied is if I get that promotion that you got 
or I get that house that you got, or I get that opportunity that you got. But the lie is that will meet our need. The truth is God's promise to meet your need. And when you see somebody else achieve, when you see somebody else get promoted, you see somebody else get something, here's what you need to know. God hasn't stopped loving you. God has not overlooked your plight. God has not forgotten about you. God loves you and has promised to meet every need. So how do I overcome the lie of temptation? Well, the only way to overcome the lie of temptation is to expose it to the truth of God. My mentor, Clyde Cranford, wrote a book, Because We Love Him. Listen to what he said. Growth in the Christian life is a process whereby we learn to recognize the lies of Satan, expose them to the truth of God, and decide whom we will believe, Satan or God. Only as lies are exposed to the truths of God can we begin to walk in the truth and really grow as Christians. That's why in verse 16, James said, do not be deceived. The word he used here, the word deceived, means to to be misled. He's saying, don't allow yourself to be led astray about where this temptation is coming from. It's a lie. So what do we do then in the moment of temptation? How do we keep from being led astray? Here's how. In every moment of temptation, we have to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit of God speaking truth into our lives to combat the lie. Now, this is why we talked about this last weekend, us being in the Word daily, weekly, consistently, sitting under the word, diving into the word, fellowshipping around the word. Why is that so important? Because as we build up that snowbank of scripture in our lives, as we're walking through life and the enemy or our flesh or the world begins to lie, the still small voice of the Holy Spirit of God begins to whisper that truth into our lives and expose the lie of the enemy to the truth of God. I love the way that John wrote about this in his gospel. Look what he said. But when he, the spirit, of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will disclose to you what is to come. Here's what this means. Every temptation is really an opportunity not just to disobey God. Every temptation is an opportunity for you and I to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and experience the victory of hearing him say, follow me. Just follow me. We get so caught up in the lie. We get so caught up in the temptation. We get so emotionally engaged. And what we really need to do is just stop for a minute. Holy Spirit of God, what's the truth? Would you teach me the truth and expose this lie? And would you give me the grace to simply believe the truth? You see, the enemy doesn't want you to understand. God never causes temptation. Because if you understand that God never causes temptation, you understand all temptation is a lie. And it changes the way you fight the fight. Second thing we know from this text of Scripture. God uses trials for our good. The enemy uses temptation to accomplish evil. God always uses trials for our good. But the enemy uses temptation to accomplish evil. Go back to verse number 17. Listen to what James said. He said, every good thing given and every perfect gift 
is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. With that verse, James really teaches us three things. Number one, God is good and he's the source of all goodness. You see this word right here? Say that word out loud. What's that word? Every. In the Greek language, it's a word that means all or the whole. And the way James uses it here, it means each and every, meaning every single thing individually. Everything in the world that comes into our lives from God is good. There's never going to be anything that God causes or allows in your life that is not for your good. Because God is the source of all Goodness, And here's the second thing it teaches us. Because God is our Father, He only gives us good things. In verse 17, He uses that word Father. And then in verse 18, He says it's the will of the Father that has brought us into His family. You and I are Christians. We're saved because of the will and work of God in our lives. And as our Heavenly Father, our Father is never going to allow anything in our life that's not for our good. Again, Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he said. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So God's the source of all goodness. As our Father, he's not going to allow anything in our lives that's not good. So here's the conclusion. Everything God allows into our lives has been filtered through his goodness. Here's what that means about trials. Even though they don't feel good, even though it may be uncomfortable, you didn't see it coming, you didn't plan for it, even though that it may be trying, even though that it may stretch you beyond what you think you're capable, here's what you can know. Whatever trial you're in the middle of right now, it has been filtered through the goodness of God for you, and you can trust that he's working it out for your good. The scripture says he does this with no variation or shifting shadow. It speaks to the unchanging nature of God. Here's what that means. God has never been any more good than he is right now. And he'll never be any less good than he is at this moment at any time in the future. This doesn't mean that everything feels good, but ultimately it is good. And you and I can trust God. Trials are used by God for our good. But you need to know, temptation is exactly the opposite. You are never going to experience a temptation that's been designed with your good in mind. I want you to think about that for a second. If we get what I'm about to share with you, it'll change the way we see temptation. Temptation will be less tempting when you know it is not for your good. It is only designed to have evil outcomes in your life. Now, it may taste good for a minute. It may feel good for a moment, but here's what you got to know. The lie that that temptation is rooted in, it's never been designed for your good. It is designed to bring evil into your life. Let me show you in a verse of Scripture. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 8, listen to what he says. He says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your, say it out loud, adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This verse tells us a few things. Number one, it tells us the enemy, he's against us. This word you said out loud a minute ago, say it again. 
adversary. That word, the, the, the beginning of that word, the root of that word in the Greek language is the, is the Greek word anti. We've transliterated that into English. The word anti means against. And the way that the Bible uses it here, it describes one who is continuously antagonistic against another. Here's what that means. Our enemy hates us. The one who is putting that temptation in front of you, get this, he is your adversary. He is against you, he hates you, and he only wants evil to be accomplished in your life. It also tells us that our enemy wants to destroy us. What's this word? Devour. Have you ever watched the Discovery Channel? You know, if you're watching the Discovery Channel and a gazelle shows up on the Discovery Channel, it's never good for the gazelle, right? Like they never have gazelle week on the Discovery Channel. The gazelle is only in the show as part of the supporting cast, right? Because you know when you see the gazelle on the Discovery Channel, something bad is about to happen to that gazelle. Some predator is sneaking up on that. In this context, it describes a lion. You know the image, that lion is, is, is worming his way through the tall grass, hiding from that gazelle, while that gazelle is just minding his or her own business, just hopping around in the field, springing about and bouncing, just enjoying life to the fullest. Has no idea this lion is just lurking through the grass and sneaking up until at the last minute, that lion leaps out onto that gazelle. And when he does, it is not one of those moments where he takes a napkin, ties it around his neck, gets his no when he gets a hold of that gazelle it's violent he literally begins to rip that animal apart in the Greek language that's the word devour the one who's sitting that temptation in front of you the one that's ultimately the source of all these lies whether it comes from our heart from the world you need to know that he is against you. He hates you. And he is sneaking up on you with the intent of literally taking your life apart one piece at a time. He violently wants to destroy your life. He violently wants to destroy your testimony. And here's what we need to know. Every temptation is born from the evil nature of our enemy who hates us and wants to destroy us. And that ought to change the way we see temptation. We see it set out there in front of us as this thing that looks so beautiful. It's this shiny thing that looks like exactly what I need to be fulfilled. It's what I need to be happy. Oh, if I just get that, I'll be content. If I can just have that, I'll finally be satisfied. Here's what you need to know. When you see it set up on the T, the one who put it there hates you. And he wants to rip your life apart. Trials God brings into our life only for our good. But temptation is of the enemy and it's only for evil. Again, my mentor Clyde said it this way. 
What may at first taste sweet soon becomes bitter. What may seem beautiful becomes distasteful. What we were sure would satisfy soon sickens us to the point of despair. Satan dangles a shiny bauble in the shadows and entices us to come after it. But it's a counterfeit, a cheap imitation of the real thing. And here's the thing. The enemy doesn't want you to know that. Because if you know that, it'll change the way you see temptation. If you knew that food sitting on the table was filled with poison, doesn't matter how good it may look or smell. If you knew it had poison, you'd have no problem staying away from it. The problem is we've been deceived. We've done what James said, don't do. He said, don't be deceived. We've been deceived into believing somehow that's for our good. But here's what the book says. No, that's, that's only for evil. Here's the third thing that's different. By persevering through trials, we experience life. By yielding to temptation, we experience death. In these verses, verse 12, and then again in verse number 15, James uses these two words that are very contrasting. Life in verse 12. Man, the one who perseveres under trial, he's going to receive the crown of life. But he says, man, the one who yields to temptation, temptation is going to bring forth death. I know trials are hard. I know they're challenging. But here's what you need to know. God uses trials to bring life. You see, there's some stuff that God wants to do in you. There's some deep longing that God wants to satisfy that he cannot do without the trial that he's allowed into your life in this season. There's a need that God wants to meet. There's something about himself he wants to make known. And the trial, even though it's uncomfortable, even though we would never choose it, we can by faith choose joy and embrace it because we know it represents the goodness of God and God's going to use it to bring life. That word life speaks to the satisfaction that we find in God. And ultimately, James is talking about a reward that we get in heaven. But we also get to begin to taste that now as we enjoy life with God. But here's what James says. Every time we yield to temptation, the enemy brings death. You know what the word death means? The end of life. The very thing that we've been promised in relationship with God. Life is the very thing the enemy's trying to steal away. Now, for the Christian, listen, God can't take away, or the enemy can't take away your salvation through temptation. But here's what he can do. One last quote from my mentor. Listen to what he said. For the Christian, sin is death to his sensitivity, his credibility, and his influence for the kingdom. You see what the enemy does through temptation in the life of a believer? He begins to steal away the life of joy. He begins to steal away the life of peace. He begins to steal away the life of sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. He begins to steal away the the ability for you and I to have a credible witness and testimony in a lost and dying world. He begins to steal away and kill our usefulness in the kingdom. There's a difference between the trial and temptation. Same word, depending on the context, means something very different. God, 
God allows and causes temptation, or excuse me, trials, but he'll never, ever cause temptation. God uses trials for our good. The enemy brings temptation only for evil consequences in our lives. And when we persevere through trials, we get to find life. But when we yield to temptation, we experience death. Can I, can I finish with one final statement of good news? Here's the good news. Whether you are facing trials or temptation, the answer is the same. God's grace is sufficient for you. You know what I need in the trial? I need the grace of God. I need the grace of God to sustain me. I need the grace of God to give me strength. I need the grace of God to show me his goodness. You know what I need in temptation? I need the grace of God. I need the grace of God to show me the truth. I need the grace of God to give me the strength to stand against temptation. And here's the good news. Whether you're in a trial or you're facing temptation, his grace is sufficient. Listen to what Jesus said. and He said to me, Paul's writing, My grace is sufficient for you. For power, his power, is perfected in weakness. Here's what that means. Whether you're facing a trial or you're facing temptation, you are not alone. And in the weakness of that trial or in the weakness of that temptation, as you lean into Jesus, guess what? His grace is made perfect in our weakness. You can turn to him. You can lean on him. You can trust in him. And you can experience victory in the trial or in the temptation.